You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. <laughs> Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. It is Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio on WZZA in Tuscumbia, Muscle Shoals, Alabama, from the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Tonight, we are talking to Tish Fox. She is the legal director of the Alabama ACLU about their lawsuit challenging the new districts. We'll also be talking about last week in Southern Labor and bringing on Otis Berryhill with the Iron Workers Local 477 out of Muscle Shoals to talk infrastructure and apprenticeships, all this and more on today's program. Uh, so, folks, if you haven't got it, gotten enough of us by the time we wrap our hour here on WZZA, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online, all the places that you can find people online, and we've got a handy uh, link tree <laughs> that where you can find all of our social media links and podcasts, YouTube, everything like that. Uh, so you can go to linktr.ee slash T-V-L-R. That is linktr.ee slash T-V-L-R. Um, and that's where you can find all of our links online. So I am uh, I just sent a message to Montrell at WCZA. He is our great DJ over there at the, uh, uh, at the station over there in Muscle Shoals, uh, making sure that they can hear us. Um, so I... Uh, Yes, sound great. Okay, thanks, Montreal. I appreciate it. <laughs> so, some of you may know, but uh, maybe you don't, but it's okay if you don't, uh, because it was over in a flash, but the Alabama legislature approved new legislative districts. As ever, they are extremely gerrymandered, although, uh, to be fair to the Alabama legislature, I guess, if we wanted to do such a thing. It's not as bad as the new Ohio districts, where Republicans won 53% of the vote, but would get 80% of the seats uh, under the new districts. So I don't think ours is quite that bad, but uh, Tish is going to tell us exactly how bad they are. The Alabama ACLU has fired, filed a lawsuit against the state uh, for these maps, so we wanted to bring her on to talk about these maps and their lawsuit uh, to Tish Fox, again, is the legal director from the Alabama ACLU. Uh, Tish, thanks for joining us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Great, great. So um, so I think most of the folks, Tish, know what gerrymandering is. But for the people that don't, could you give us a really quick rundown of what that means? Absolutely. Gerrymandering is when 
a group um, separates and divides a larger group that it represents in a way that is intended to give uh, unfair advantage. And there is racial gerrymandering, there is partisan gerrymandering. And occasionally we may see language gerrymandering. Um, basically what you need to take away from it is that the pie has been divided up and everyone does not get the same size piece. And that's, you know, the, the, the phrase that's bandied about a lot when we talk about gerrymandering is uh, politicians choosing their voters instead of the voters choosing their politicians. Um, in Alabama, this it, this really affects Democrats more than it does, or or it affects Democrats more negatively than it does Republicans. But I think that that when we talk about fair representation, I don't think that this should be a partisan issue, and I think that we we should be able to look at uh, any any sort of gerrymandering and say like that's not it, like it's not appropriate that um you know that that. <laughs> that you get a fifty percent of the vote and then eighty percent of the representation, like that. Just I, I think at a base level, people understand that whether you're Republican or Democrat, you're black or white, you understand in a Republican small R form of government that we've got. You know the uh, the 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 representational democracy. The 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 thing is that you elect representatives to do your bidding in the government. It's not supposed to be that uh, they get to pick you. And so that's, you know, people say that, oh, we're a republic, we're not a democracy. And I think that the distinction there is is a bit like, not meaningful in a lot of cases, but right. to the extent that it is, um, a republic is supposed to be representative, like the representatives are supposed to be representative of the people. And in so many places today, they are not. So, uh, can you talk to can you tell us what was the state of the districts in Alabama before these new uh, lines were drawn? Well, here in Alabama, uh, the Republican Party has a supermajority. Uh, that means that on any given issue, the Republican Party has enough representatives that they can um, they can over a governor's veto. Now, here in Alabama, both houses of the legislature and the governor's mansion are controlled by one party. But the issue comes into play uh, irrespective of the party. And in fact, there are places in the country where Democrats are in control and they gerrymander they're do they get an unfair advantage. Mm -hmm. Right. Here so, in Alabama, the population is about 40% color. Tish, I'm sorry, you were starting to break up uh, dear, when you when you started to say that. Um, you were saying that the population in, in Alabama is 40% people of color. Can you pick up there? Um, absolutely. But... Uh, Candidates of choice do not reflect the population. We have Alabama divvied up in such a way uh, that people other than the uh, representatives for a particular area are controlling their legislative agenda. For example, 
in Birmingham, Jefferson County is populated enough to have five districts, but in fact, it's carved up in such a way that it has seven and rural counties dig in to Jefferson County and uh, just gut the legislative preference of the people of Jefferson County. And Montgomery is similar, Huntsville is similar, uh, Mobile is similar. And ultimately what we see here is that representatives basically sit and look at the map and decide who they want to be their constituents. And in fact, when we were observing special session, the chairman of the reapportionment committee said they invited each representative in to see if they were happy with their map, happy hmm. with who they were going to represent. And that's problematic. That's people insane. should choose the representative. The representative should not be choosing the people, as you said. That is that's wild. I did not know that that they got <laughs> they got people got these special like it's like it's like we were on the menu. The voters uh, are you <laughs> are you happy with the plate that we are serving you today? And this goes. I mean, this is this is bad. Democratically speaking, speaking again, small d. Um, even for the big D Democratic representatives, why is that? Because if you uh, uh, have like an 80-20 district, and all of the districts are, are like that, or, or, or 65-35 or something like that, there's not a single competitive uh, congressional district for the U.S. House of Representatives in the state of Alabama uh, as of the and, last drawings. And, and, and that, That's like, exactly right. That's not good. It's not good that there is, there is almost zero chance that a Republican wins Terry Sewell's district, ever. Ever, ever, ever. And there is almost a 0% chance that a Democrat wins Mo Brooks's district. And that's bad. That's right. Like, that's not good for democracy, for, like, our representation in the government. And I think that people should be more upset about this. And, and you know... We are also on conservative talk radio stations, and one of the one of the hosts, his way of dulling people's interest in this is he acts like drawing the maps is the most boring thing ever. Like every time he got during the <laughs> during the session when they were drawing these maps, every time he would get a representative on to talk about it, he would act like he was falling asleep because he felt like it was so boring. And that's just such bs because like like i feel that he knows what he's doing the people who he's bringing on know what he's doing and it, it's like they're trying to pacify their audiences by like i mean it's bad for them too that their representatives are choosing like it's just it's not good for anybody you don't get the best the cream of the crop doesn't rise to the top and it, it's just i get very frustrated by attempts to lessen what an injustice this is and um and 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 that it just like it happened in two days. There was virtually like, you know, no. There was no conversation. There was right. no transparency. And in fact, if you look at what is discussed about the process, the legislature and the committee failed to do the due diligence that we know is necessary to draw maps appropriately. Hmm. And look, here's the thing. When you look at the map of Alabama, you know that there are certain places where there's going to be a high population of black and brown people. We know that. 
we know that through the black belt, there's going to be a high percentage of black and brown people. But Mm -hmm. what we don't expect is that our legislators are going to pack as many black voters into an area as they can to prevent those voters from having an impact or make competitive the districts around where the Black community is centralized. You see this happen in Montgomery. Remember, if you go back and look, there was a representative whose district was drawn in such a way that she was basically losing her core constituents, and she complained. Mm. I don't know how to represent these people. (laughs) These people... (laughs) are not going to be open and interested in having me represent them. Uh. And the map changed. And when you pack as many people as you can into as small a district as you can, you are conceding that you fear the power of Mm -hmm. those voices if they collect and collaborate. And you also prevent new blood Un, uh, uninitiated blood to come into the process. For example, we have a candidate who was looking to run for a district in Prattville. He's got time working with the governor. He's got experience dealing with legislators and he knew he wanted to run for this district that did not have an incumbent. But the lines were drawn in such a way that he is now not a resident of the district for which he was planning to run. Mm. They basically cut him off at the knees so that he could not represent or step forward to represent a new or different idea of what Republicans should be here in Alabama. And it happens all of the time. The lines move when a competitor, whether it's Democrat or Republican, steps in and wants to shake up the scene and they are drawn out of the district where they are planning on making their move. And it might only be two or three blocks one way or the other. But what we see is a cronyism of selecting who is going to hold a position and then everything possible is done to dissuade competitors from stepping in and muddying the waters by making it a competitive electoral process. That's not what Alabama needs. Right. So the new new lines that were drawn... You, like I said, you filed a you filed a lawsuit against the state for these lines. Um, what law do you believe these lines to be in violation of? What are, are, is it just the U.S. House lines, or is it state and state House and state Senate lines? Uh, talk to us about the suit. What law do you think is being violated? What is it over? And what is your path to winning? Do you think you can win? Well, we are suing not only concerning the congressional maps, but also the state house maps as well. As to the congressional maps, we are still concerned that District 7 has used race more so than any other indicator as the legislature was drawing those lines. And They are in violation not only of the United States Constitution, but Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act as well. 
Now, we know that there are other sections of the Voting Rights Act that have been nullified and are no longer operative. And Alabama used to have to comply with those sections as well. It used to be that when Alabama wanted to change its district lines, it had to go and get a review and permission from the Department of Justice because they had demonstrated a complete and total inability to draw maps without inappropriately taking race into consideration. This is the first cycle where they don't have to do that. And what we see with District 7 is that whereas all of the other congressional districts have only one or two uh, county splits Mm -hmm. as they were pulling those districts together, District 7 has something like seven or eight or nine uh, county splits because they were trying to take little bits here and little bits there to make sure that they got the right population count in District 7. And by the way, they wanted to get those periphery black folks on those counties at the edge of District 7. They wanted Similarly, to throw them in. Yeah, they wanted to throw them into the District Seven so that they could vote, uh, so that they wouldn't be voting the wrong way in their districts. They wanted to throw that, them all in one Democrat's district so that they can uh, dilute all of their power into that one person and um and and not have it not have it anywhere else, not have the challenge anywhere else. And you and you mentioned that uh, the case that you were referring to was Shelby v. Holder, uh, which was decided in 2014, maybe, at the Supreme 13, Court. 2014? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, uh, at the Supreme Court. And what that did was, it, you know, it, it, it gutted the Voting Rights Act for, for people that, that may not be familiar with that. And like you were talking, that was called pre-clearance. And um, I think it was Antonin Scalia who basically said in his opinion that they were doing this because the Congress was so it had just the law was ratified. The Voting Rights Act, including preclearance, was just ratified by the Congress before that. And Scalia said in his opinion that, oh, well, we're going to get rid of this because Congress would never have the will to do it otherwise because they're afraid of being called racist or something. And so, you know, conservatives, again, like there's there, there's so much hypocrisy when you're talking about the Republican Party and the conservative movement in the United States because they're, they're always deriding activist judges uh, who d- don't interpret the law, who, in, who, who try to put forth their vision for America instead of just interpreting the law. And in his opinion, he said that what that's what he was doing. I mean, it's just it's astounding. And and of course, they don't they don't care about that. They just they're they're glad that uh, they can they can uh, get black people and Democrats out of power. And, and you know, so uh, <laughs> so what the the last thing before we let you go, what do you how how do you see your path to victory looking i know that there there's been some there have been some gerrymandering cases that have been successful and some that haven't uh so how do you feel about your chances going forward well our chances going forward on the law are strong our team has done a lot of work to look at the population of alabama how it's changed and what is appropriate in drawing the line so that there is proportional representation. And we are relying on the fact that the state has at least testified in the state house that they didn't do any of those studies. 
They didn't do any of that hard work in evaluating and ensuring that they were not packing black voters in one part of the state or uh, cracking black voters, that is artificially separating a block of voters in other parts of the state, specifically Huntsville. Mm -hmm. Um, We are before a three-judge panel. As you know, there are two other lawsuits going forward on the congressional seats as well. Um, And we are already hot and heavy into the litigation process. We have here, we had a hearing today. We have hearings after the first of the year. And our hope and expectation is that the court will take seriously that the Voting Rights Act intended for a very detail-oriented process. And the state just failed to take their responsibilities to do that process seriously. Tish, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Good night, all. All right, thanks. Uh, That was Tish Fox. She is the legal director for the Alabama ACLU talking about their lawsuit against the state of Alabama for their gerrymandered districts. Uh, Very important. Uh, It would be very good for the people of Alabama if they can win. So hopefully uh, I'm rooting for them. I hope you all are too. Uh, Let's go on to the next item in the agenda. We are going to be talking about last week in Southern Labor. Last week is Southern in Southern Labor is a segment that we do every week uh, where we look at Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird? You can subscribe to that yourself at whogetsthebird.substack.com. It is a fantastic newsletter that aggregates basically everything that's happening in the labor movement in the United States. Uh, I'm friends with Jonah. Jonah's a good guy. And so he has allowed us to go through and pull out the important things, the things that are happening in the South. If you want to if you want to see what's happening in the rest of the country, you should subscribe to whogetsthebird.substack.com. But for what's happening in the South, you can just hang out here. Hang out with us. Uh, this affects the South as well as the rest of the country. The first thing that we're going to talk about is under the uh, in internal union politics, and this is a huge story, absolutely huge story. The Teamsters have counted the votes in the election of international officers, and it was an absolute rout. With the Teamsters United O'Brien Zuckerman slate creaming the incumbent backed slate two to one, and it's really hard to overstate how big a deal this might be for the labor movement, but. The mainstream press is starting to get it, I think. Um, At a minimum, we're likely to see a massive UPS contract fight. And O'Brien, in an interview, said that he, he made some very specific goals and a very specific threat. He said, we are going to be fighting to get rid of two-tiered wages at UPS. We are going to be uh, fighting for, what was what were the other things? The two-tiered wages are a huge thing. Oh, starting wages from $14 to $20 an hour, as well as, gosh, there was one more thing. There were three things that they were going to be fighting for. They were very specific. And he said that they're going to be willing to strike if necessary. So these are very specific Uh, Very specific goals and a very big and specific threat. So let's hope they follow through on that because it's very important to to take advantage of where we are already organized like places at UPS so that the labor movement can go to the unorganized workers uh, that are at FedEx, that are at uh, Amazon, places like this and say, look, 
you can start working at UPS for $20 an hour. Don't you want that where you're at? Let's organize Amazon. Uh, very important stuff. Meanwhile, the UAW referendum is hot on the heels of the Teamsters election. Oh, and by the way, the Teamsters local in Muscle Shoals, 94% for the Teamsters United slate. 94%. So uh, if there are any of y'all listening out there for the in the Teamsters local in Muscle Shoals, we appreciate we appreciate y'all voting for that slate here on the show, and we really look forward to what y'all do. Uh, and if you ever need anything, be sure to holler at us. Meanwhile, the UAW referendum is hot on the heels of the Teamsters election, with voting closing on November 29th. The Toledo Blade looked at the referendum as voting winds down. Uh, Jonah said that his sense is that it's going to pass, possibly by a wide margin, uh, which will kick off a campaign season in the union in preparation for their convention next summer. The referendum is on one member, one vote. Uh, uh, historically, the UAW has elected their international officers at convention, and a lot of people in the UAW want to be able to vote for their officers directly. One member, one vote. Uh, so that's what the referendum is about. Uh, let's go to new organizing. There were 55 freight truck drivers with EPES Transport in Chester, Virginia. They are organizing with Teamsters Local 322. There are 11 drivers for Aramark Uniform Services in Savannah, Georgia. They are unionizing with Teamsters. Local 728. And workers at Tudor's Biscuits in Elkview, West Virginia. They are organizing with UFCW Local 400. They marched on the boss last week to demand union recognition, and the boss called the cops on them. <laughs> so, uh... We love seeing stuff like that, absolutely. Bosses cowering before the power of workers. Uh, in union elections, there were 54 workers at Rock Climbing Gym Earth Treks in Arlington, Virginia. They voted 28 to 14 to unionize with Workers United Mid-Atlantic Regional Joint Board and 13 maintenance workers at Fort Bliss, Texas. Voted 6-5 to five to join the Operating Engineers Local 351. We have several updates in the strikes and bargaining section. The epic John Deere UAW strike has ended after five weeks with an immense 10% raise and the death of a proposed tier of pensionless new hires. The final ratification vote was 61% yes, a flip from the vote on the near-identical deal uh, presented two weeks earlier, which went down by 55%. The new offer had a bit of a sweetener, but it seems clear that a good chunk of the workers assessed that they had won as much as they were going to win in this contract cycle, which was a lot. Uh, in addition to the above, defeating a new tier that was proposed by John Deere, they're curr they currently have two tiered wages. John Deere wanted to create a third, so they were able to beat that back. In addition to that, they also won back their cost of living adjustment, boosted their pensions, and got some improvements to their departmental quota pay system. And more importantly, they showed the country that you can strike and win big. They rejected two consecutive contract offers, more than doubling the money that John Deere wanted to put on the table and they weren't afraid to buck their union leadership to do it. Uh, and so the next UAW Deer contract is in 2027. But we expect that this strike to feature heavily in the national UAW election that'll kick off in early 2022, presuming the one-member-one-vote referendum passes. Meanwhile, 14,000 
grocery workers with UFCW Local 455 at about 110 stores in and around Houston are on the edge of what's what would be this year's biggest strike. These workers have been working under a contract that Kroger uh, just went ahead and imposed late last year that changes their health plan, locks workers into a new wage scale, and apparently has stopped collecting union dues, according to a worker that Jonas spoke with. IATSE has ratified two big contracts nationwide, so this effect affects workers in the South as well. They have ratified two big contracts ending a months-long strike threat with among uh, 60,000 film and TV workers. And because we live in the dumbest possible timeline, the big contract was actually voted down by a majority of the voting members, but due to IATSE's electoral college-style voting system, it was ratified anyway. Uh, so luckily for the national leadership of IATSE, their next elections aren't until 2025, the year after the next contracts are up, but leadership elections are also delegated. So any would-be challengers are going to have a tough road to hoe because uh, membership is not happy about that, about being uh, made to work under a contract that most of them voted against. Uh, SEIU 1199 in West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio, representing 1,000 strikers at Cabell Hospital in Huntington, West Virginia, says the company's officers offers during bargaining this week have been getting worse, not better, as the strike nears its three-week mark. Uh, UMWA miners in Brookwood, Alabama, head into their ninth month on strike. Uh, good news, though, they had a toy drive, and every single toy that a UMWA uh, child asked for was donated to them. So that is a fantastic uh, show of solidarity among people in the labor movement and supporters across the country and across the world. Uh, Kellogg's and BCTGM, the union representing Kellogg's workers, began bargaining on, on Monday after a few weeks of deadlock and inaction. Uh, the meeting is a good sign, but the union reports that the company has not moved on any major issues and they still want to take the union bug off of the boxes that are made in the United States at union facilities. Just a Clap in the face to workers at these plants. Um, absolutely, totally disrespectful. School bus drivers in Berkeley County, South Carolina, held a sick out last week. And cafeteria workers in Wake County, North Carolina, went on strike last week. Wheelchair attendants for subcontractor Bags, Inc. at the Orlando International Airport held a one-day strike with 32BJ SEIU Florida. These workers make less than $8 an hour. Contract votes at two Ingalls Run shipyards in Newport News, Virginia, and Pascal... Pascacola, Mississippi, did not go as the leadership planned. In Virginia, the members of Steelworkers Local 8888 voted down their contract two to one and is now talking openly of a strike. And in Mississippi, nobody knows what happened because the leadership said simply that they need to do a revote among the 13 unions at the shipyard. Uh, that sounds like it went down hard, but who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, so, again, folks, that's what happened last week in Southern Labor. If you want to see what happened in the rest of U.S. Labor, then subscribe to Jonah Furman's newsletter, whogetsthebird.substack.com. Our next guest is Otis Berryhill. Have we got Otis on the line, Ben? 
Fantastic. So Otis Berryhill is the political coordinator and a training director for a wonderful sponsor of the show, Ironworkers Local 477. Uh, they operate on four of the five largest uh, uh, largest projects in North Alabama. They do a lot of work here. So uh, if you're looking for a good contractor, you should call Jeb Miles for sure. Uh, you can reach out to me to get his contact information. And if you want to join the Ironworkers, uh, you maybe should talk to Otis after we get done talking to him. Another sponsor of the show is the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. Uh, they represent workers in uh, the TVA, the Government Accountability Office, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers down in Mobile. So we appreciate their support of the show. Um, so like I said, Otis is the political coordinator and a training director for Ironworkers 477. Otis, thanks for coming on. Thank you. So there was an infrastructure bill that passed uh, last week uh, or the week before, something like that. And now, Otis, what I'm being told on right wing talk radio is that only 10 percent of this funding goes to infrastructure. Is that right? No, sir, it's not. We're actually <laughs> most all of us going for infrastructure. That was my understanding. So I was very <laughs> confused when I heard these people on my radio talking about it. <laughs> So give us some broad strokes on the overall funding breakdown. Like what are the things that that this that it's a trillion dollar bill. My understanding that a lot is that a lot of this about 450 billion of it was already like kind of slated to be spent. So we've got 550 billion dollars of new spending, is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah, around 560. Yes, sir. So what uh what are the priorities in in this bill? What what is it going to be funding? Well, in Alabama, we're going to get uh, $5.2 billion for roads, $225 million for bridges, $405 million for transportation, and uh, $79 million for, uh, to build a network of electric, electric vehicle chargers to facilitate long-distance travel. And the biggest one I know a lot of people in rural areas are looking forward to is $100 million to connect every Alabamian to the Internet, which is something that's hard to believe in 2021. They don't have that. Yeah, that I, my parents live 40 minutes from what is now the largest city in the state of Alabama. They live 40, 40 minutes outside of Huntsville. And the highest speed internet that they can get is uh, 0.5 megabytes uh, per second upload speed, which is like, you usually hear something like a thousand megabytes, <laughs> like in the city, and and they're only forty minutes away. I can't imagine what the people are going through in like the really really rural places of Alabama. I mean, it, it's it you know it's crazy that uh, the disparity is so large, and it and it's crazy that we haven't done something like this before. Yeah, you're right. It, and it puts kids in a rural area at a disadvantage when they go to school. Because I know my kids, everything's on a Chromebook and mm -hmm. all that. And when you're in a rural area, you know, you're at a disadvantage as far as the education you can get without having Internet. Exactly. I mean, my sister right now is in college and she routinely has to like she can't come home until she finishes submitting her assignments, especially if they're like bigger assignments. They take up a lot of storage. She has to she has to stay at school until she, you know, she can't do her homework at home. Uh, 
you know, like that, like you said, that's a huge disadvantage to people to not be able to have these resources at their house like everybody else does. Uh, so, so it's it's a really great thing that. Uh, and so, do you what? What can people in rural areas expect to to see from this? Like, what do you have any idea what kind of speed internet we're looking at, uh, and how what the timeline is for it getting everywhere? You know, anything goes with the federal government; it'll go slow. It'll be a while before this money really starts getting doled out to the individual states. But I'm hoping that'll be one of the first things we do. That, if you look, Alabama has 620 bridges and almost 3,000 miles of roads that are really considered by the federal government to be in very poor condition. You know, Mm -hmm. I know the people in rural areas seem to take a hit on everything worse than us that live in town do. Oh, for sure. That That's just about the way that it always yeah. goes, right? <laughs> I know that if you have a child that has to ride a school bus, I know when I was a kid, I rode one for a few years and, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't have to get up that early. But now because of the routes that you have to take because of the uh, roads, culverts and bridges in bad condition, your child may have to be at the bus stop for the school bus at, you know, Five thirty, six o'clock in the morning and have to do all that time to get to school in the same way coming back because you can't take a direct route to right. these uh, people's houses. Right, right. And so what about how how is this gonna um translate into into jobs and economic activity? Like what do you think like well, so let's just start with the jobs. What is what are the jobs going to look like from this for uh, tradespeople and specifically for trades unions in Alabama? Well, it should be uh, like I said, build more bridges and all that. Manufacturing should uh, it, it's going to be good, high paying jobs, and people should get an uh, education on how to do these jobs. It's, I'm not talking about uh, just digging ditches and stuff like that. I'm uh, learning learning a trade. It should mm-hmm. be plenty of jobs open for people that want to learn a trade. Right, right. Is there does do the iron workers and the other trade unions have have plans in place to ensure that their market share doesn't decrease as all this work flows in? Uh, I, I I listened to I, I was talking to some tradesperson the other day, and and they were talking about that the risk of losing your market share is is in the good times when when you've got all this work flowing in because if you lo- because if you can't match the le- you know if you've got jobs and you can't as the union send people out to work them then they're going to find somebody else and then maybe you lose you lose that position that would have been a union position and, and you lose market share do the unions have a plan to ensure that their market share stays what it is or even potentially grows during this period yes sir uh 95% of this uh, infrastructure bill will, but will be Davis-Bacon money. I don't know if you know what Davis-Bacon is, but that makes on this government money that each company has to pay a certain prevailing wage on those jobs. So that's that's going to help us union people out a lot on that. It's going to make a level playing field when we bid against. But as far as getting people trained here at our apprenticeship, we've already, we're taking applications. We're interviewing people and, uh, Right now, we have more apprentices than we've ever had that I know of. We have around 76 apprentices now. And uh, like I said, as the jobs come, we'll bring more in. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, Eddie Mitchell. He's our organizer. We're going out organizing uh, non-union iron workers, too, to bring them over and tell them the benefits of being in the union arm. Right, right. And so the apprenticeship program, um, how does it – how does it – like, do you take – 
new apprentices uh, apprentices just all the time or is there like a certain open enrollment period like how, how does that what like if i wanted to become a first year iron worker apprentice like what what do i need to do to do that okay we take applications year round mm-hmm. but our school sort of works just like a high school or college you know you start a semester in uh in september you finish that semester in uh december then we usually start a new semester in january and go to May. And as if we see that we're going to need some apprentices down the road, which, you know, usually no one works coming up, we'll bring more in, interview more and go ahead and get them started in our program. Right. And so you said you've, you've got 76 apprentices right now. Um, it, it looked to me like the, the increase in, in, in spending for roads and bridges, which is going to be like, that's heavy iron worker stuff. That's a lot of work for y'all. Um, yes, sir. So the, uh, so hopefully you'll be able to get a whole lot more from <laughs> a whole bunch of apprentices with it, with this. And like you said, it, it's government money. So it's going to come to you slow and you'll be able to build up capacity in the meantime, yes, the apprenticeship, pro- what can people expect, uh, in the, like, what kind of stuff do they learn as an iron worker apprentice, and how long does it take? It's a three-year program. You learn pretty much everything from the ground up. We put the rebar in. We uh, we hang the steel. We uh, we put the sheets on the belt and put the roof on. Most of the time, we're the ones that do the heavy rigging inside, like a manufacturing facility. We do the heavy rigging, set the equipment, do all that. Pretty much the whole building. And, and industrial so, maintenance, that's a big part of what we do, too. Okay, okay. And so the uh, what's the difference then? Like, what is a first-year apprentice going to know versus what a journeyman knows? Like, that, like how, how much supervision and everything like that uh, goes into this, the, yeah, the, the program? Yeah, yes, sir. Uh, yeah, we, we never have to just send somebody on the job and say, okay, you're an hour. You're an hour. They're going right. to be with a qualified <laughs> journeyman, and they're going to be right there with them, and they're going to learn – they'll learn the craft from them all – You'll learn on the job and here at the school. We teach. We have a we have a well facilities here. We teach welding, how to tie a rebar, all that right here at the school. How many hours of schooling, like you, like let's say a week, can can a, could an iron worker apprentice expect to to need to go to? Yeah, our first years go uh, three hours a night, two nights a week, and then when you get into second year, we go to like a block system where you go fifty hours at a time, mm-hmm. and you do that uh, four times a year. You end up, you have to have 206 hours a year of uh, classroom instruction. Okay, okay. And um, what's the pass rate of your apprenticeship program? Well, we have some that quit. So, I mean, I'm working in for everybody. We have some that quit, but we work with everybody to make sure they know what they need before they become a journeyman. Mm-hmm. You know, but, th- you know, the uh, this craft isn't for everybody. Some people come in, see what it is, and, and they decide it's not for them, and they may go, you know, a different route. Right, right. So, so do you, the so your dropout is the dropout or the fail rate like fairly high, or, or do you get most people passing the program that enter it? Well, it, it differs from year to year to really tell you truth. But we we do have some that drop out, some that some that just can't handle the work or don't mm-hmm. want to do this type of work. I mean, it it is hard work. Right, right. Oh yeah, no, I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that it is. I don't know. But, but we're going to give you all the tools you need over here for you to uh, be successful. Okay, so let's let's talk about the We're benefit. not going to throw you out there where you're going to sink. We're going to try to right. help you swim. 
Right, right. Now I know, I know, uh, uh, Jeb and Eddie, and yeah, I, I know all y'all out there are going to try to take care of everybody best best you can. So let's talk about the the benefits then, which is what a lot of people are are going to be listening for. Like if they're interested in this, what? How much am I actually going to get paid? We start out anywhere between eighteen and twenty dollars an hour for a first year, and that's seventy percent. And one thing good about with us is you can come over here and go to school and you can work to support your family. Mm-hmm. And that's a big, a big thing right there. Like I said, after three years, you'll top out. We're topping out right around 29 to $30 an hour right now, according on what job you own. Now, when you, that 29 to $30, all of that money's going to go on your check itself for your working assessments. And I know on the non-union side, if you want if you want good insurance, you're going to pay for it. And I've heard some some of our non-union guys that come over that could be up to two hundred dollars a week for family insurance. Mm-hmm. Plus, you're paying for your own retirement right now, and that's good with us. No matter what contractor you work for, all of your money comes back here in in, in your name. So right. it don't matter you. It, you know, if this company gets slow and you go to work for another company, you don't have to worry about losing your insurance or starting a new retirement. It all comes here. Right. And, and, and so let's let's make right that. There. Yeah. I mean, let, let, just to make that explicit, you're saying that your health care as a union iron worker is 100 percent employer paid. Yes, sir. No yes, copays, sir. no deductibles, no premiums. Now we, uh, we, we have that copays and deductibles as far as. Uh, I think it's a, we have a thousand dollars and then after that, it, it pays 80, 85%. But like I said, but nothing comes out of your pocket as far as your premiums go. It's all paid by the employer and our retirement, gotcha. we have, our retirement, it, it's paid in according to the number of hours you work and what age you retire. I mean, it, it's a really good retirement. Yeah. Yeah, that I mean, those those benefits are certainly going to be uh, uh, certainly hard to match, especially coming in. What really impressed me is the high, the high starting wage as a first year apprentice. I mean, you come in uh, and you don't, you know, you don't know nothing about iron working, and that's why you're an apprentice and you're already yes, making eighteen dollars an hour. I mean, that's you know, I, I've been where I work for four years now, and um, that's that's not much less than I make. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> um well so, i mean you've got to pay good money to get good help and these and these right. union contractors know that yeah that, yeah and, and you get what you pay for that's the same thing with a contractor and all that if you have a contract that comes in with a, a bed that's so much lower than everybody else there's mm-hmm. a reason why that their bed's that much lower right you get what you pay for right yeah that that's exactly right and and you know it's uh in mul- and in multiple ways too, you, you know, like maybe you're not going to get as good a work, uh, but also like the society that you live in is just not is not going to be as good if people don't have enough money to like support their families and stuff. You know, I mean the yes, sorry, it, um, it, the folks that like folks that have to work all the time to support their family and like they're just barely breaking even like that's not a good life for those kind of folks and so what so the um something that always like that is different from other unions uh and non-union folks 
it'd be difficult for them to understand this. The trade unions and the iron workers, you don't work for one like specific contractor. Like you don't come on for like I work for so and so. Like you're a union member and the union like dispatches you out to jobs when they get requests. How does that how does that work exactly? Well, when you're working, when you get laid off, you come over to the hall with Jay of it and we call what you sign the book. You put your name on the book. And then uh, when contractors call, need men, say however many it is, we'll, we'll go by that list and dispatch those men out to those jobs. So we do, we, I guess you'd say we do the looking for you. You, you don't, you know, that, that's our job. Right, right. And so what, how like, how stable is it? Do people, do people usually have like work? most like all the time 40 hours a week or, or like what what is the work life of an iron worker right now most probably most of us are there but working more than they want to right now <laughs> but and that's another thing about being in the union if we don't have work here you know our international will call other unions and help you find work in other mm-hmm. you know in other places it's a brotherhood. We're all helping each other out. If our local's short on, if our work local doesn't have work, and let's say Nashville does, they'll call down here and say, "Hey, if y'all got some guys that don't have a job, send them up here to us." And and that's you know we're a brotherhood. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know that is an important thing. I think that that people don't like that people don't conceptualize when when they're thinking about these sorts of things. If you're in a, you know, it, when you're in one of these trade unions, like you said, you are an international organization. You're an international brotherhood and so if work slows down in one area, you will be able to uh, to to go somewhere else. And I, I spoke to a pipe fitter who got a job in California who worked there for a year, made like $250,000 or something, probably worked a lot for it. Uh, no doubt he deserved it. But, you know, the, w- there's work all over the place available for you. And if you want to travel, that's a great way to do it. Um, but if you don't want to travel, it's a, it's still a great job. I mean, it, the it, it's it, it it's really really cool like i don't i don't even have that as as a union member working where i do because it's not like you know like you said y'all do the looking for your members and i had to look for the you know the union represents me at work as opposed to the union sending me to work um so that that's a really cool safety net that trade union members have yes sir it is it is and well this infrastructure bill i think you're going to we're going to see a lot more, like you was talking about, people work, uh, trying to make ends meet. The infrastructure bill is going to rebuild the middle class. There's going to be a lot more money for people, uh, extra money to spend and all that. And it's going to be a really good deal. It's going to pay for itself. I know you you talking about the right wing people saying it's not. But there's <laughs> 30, uh, 17, 17 Nobel Prize economists that's that's looked at this bill and says it's going to pay for itself without raising taxes Mm -hmm. and should be after five to 10 years, maybe even get a tax break for people like us. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing about that we are told by, by the boss, by corporations, by executives is that trickle down economics is what works, right? That if you just give, people at the top more money than they will benevolently 
give it to us at the bottom like that it just doesn't even make sense when you say it because everybody works like all the people i don't know how people fall for it because people that listen to the radio like they're listen to the radio on their way into work right they know that uh the boss uh the the especially like the head ceo they don't care about them at all and uh, you know if they get more money that's just going to go in their bank account it's not going to go to help you and so the, the way trickle down offends me to start with i know i mean it's just like <laughs> it's almost like you're pissing down my back like i don't want that yeah you're right yeah i wasn't gonna say it like that but you're right you know, the funny so, thing about it about it is if anybody listened to reagan He's supposed to be the father of Trickle Down. He implemented his first four years in office and tried to get rid of his second four. And Mm -hmm. and we're still using it nowadays. And, I mean, people across the country are are noticing it. We saw that the Republican governor of West Virginia, uh, Jim... Uh, Jim Justice said, oh, well, we did all this stuff. We got rid of prevailing wage. We implemented right-to-work laws, and the people who told us the jobs was going to be there, uh, the jobs ain't there. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, because yeah. they, don't, they don't care about you. They don't care yeah. about working folks. And the way to actually stimulate the economy is to do exactly what's being done right now, and frankly, to to do a lot more of it, to do a lot more of it. But uh, you are going to get so much more economic stimulus from having uh, good roadways, good public transportation, especially good public transportation, like you were talking about, the broadband, not only from creating the jobs of the people that are going to be able to do this, but from the ancillary benefits that you're going to get from the people who use it. I mean, people are going to be more willing to travel if you've got better roads, better public infrastructure. If you've got better public transit, in cities, uh, they maybe don't have to buy a car and they can go do something else or, or, or they'll be able to get to work more reliably. They'll be able to keep a job instead of being late all the time and getting fired. The people will be able to do homework in these rural places uh, just like people in the cities can do. I mean, that is the way. And that's actually been proven because what happened after trickle-down economics was started during the Reagan era, uh, working-class wages stagnated while CEO pay rose. What happened before the Reagan era was we had 94% top marginal tax rates, we had union density rates of 30%, and we had wages rising with productivity. As workers made more, we made more. Okay, You're but- right. <laughs> as, as, as union membership went down... The people in working poverty went up. I mean, exactly. they went hand in hand with each other. Exactly. And, I mean, it's the, a shame. The graph, the Economic Policy Institute, who is represented by the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union, uh, might I add, we've talked to them on the show. Um, the Economic Policy Institute has a really good graph that shows union membership versus uh versus workers wages and it's just amazing how like okay you've got membership and wages going up and then you've got membership and wages going down while productivity continues to rise and that really shows in one graph the best way to create a a a middle class is to encourage unionization and to join one yourself if you want to join the middle class. If you want to not be in in poverty as a working person, uh, you should join a union. And if you're a politician who 
wants to say that they care about working people. You should encourage unionization. Uh, you should be standing up for our brothers and sisters down in Brookwood who are striking against Warrior Matt Cole. You should be for things like passing the PRO Act, which would help people to organize uh, and and eliminate some of the anti-worker laws uh, from Taft-Hartley and things like that. Yeah, I know but, some of the stuff I've seen at the, uh, the Amazon deal. On their vote now, yeah. the pro act would have really would really help those workers in protecting them. And what you was talking about, we're not going to get the middle class back without without bringing the unions back. That that's just a fact. It, it is absolutely my- a fact, and that's why that's why instead of instead of doing so much in electoral politics, I decided to uh, I decided to get active in my union and do things like this radio show, help workers organize on the job, because I believe that that's the best way, uh, the, the quickest way, the most immediate way, and the best way that they're going to make their lives better as an individual, but also to make our society better. Uh, Otis, thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate your time. We are out of time tonight. You've been listening to the Valley Labor Report on WZ ZZA in Tuscumbia, Muscle Shoals, Alabama. You can find us online on uh, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, all the places at the Valley Labor Report. Make sure you're following us and we will see you next week.